So we are on the final week now of this series that we've been calling Fixer Upper, studying in the book of Nehemiah and trying to figure out how to rebuild the dream for our life. And let me tell you how this series came about. It came about with a question. And here was the question that our team began to ask of ourselves and the people in our church months ago. When life doesn't meet your expectations, do you change your expectations and settle for less or do you change your life and go grab hold of the dream? When life doesn't meet your expectations, do you just change your expectations and settle or do you go take hold of life and try to get the dream back? We believe as we've been studying through the book of Nehemiah that you change your life and you go try to rebuild the dream for your life. And we've seen that happen all month long at our church. We've had people just randomly stopping by church offices. We had a man the first week of the series who came in and said, look, when when I look at my life, where my life is, where my job is, where my family is, I mean, everything is broken and I need help and I need hope. Pastor Ryan sat and talked with him for an hour and literally led him to make a decision to follow Jesus right in his office after the first week of this series. We had a mom who left the first week of this series and said, you know, the job I'm working and the time it allows me to spend with my family is broken. It's not what I expected from my life. So she went in Monday morning and emailed one of our team members and said, pray for me. I'm asking for a transfer or trying to find a new job because I know God has something different from me. And within three weeks, she'd been transferred to a different department in the same job that allowed her to work days and be with her family every night during the week. We had a young mom come in who was totally overwhelmed and didn't know where to turn, who met with our pastors for a few days and ended up getting connected into a group of moms that met at our church. And she sent an email and basically said, I think this church and that group was meant for me because I needed them at this time. We had a young guy in his 20s, a young single guy come in and say, I know God has something more for my life than what it is, who's really seen things begin to turn around in his life. We've had a church full of people finally willing to say, this area of my life is broken and I need help. And I don't know what your area of brokenness is. I don't know what help you need, but I believe the book of Nehemiah can help you. Perhaps you're like the man I read about a few months ago from the state of Punjab in India, 42-year-old father of two, who over the course of two months had swallowed 40 knives that had to be surgically removed from his stomach. In case you didn't believe, I actually brought a picture of the surgery. There are the 40 knives that they removed from this man's stomach. The doctor said this guy had a wild urge to consume metal. In my 20 years of practice, I've never seen anything like it, thank God. Um, some were, they were all foldable knives. Some were still folded. Some were actually opened. They asked this guy, why would you do this? And he said, I don't know why I used to swallow knives. I just enjoyed the taste, and I was addicted. How people get addicted to alcohol and other things. My situation was similar. Probably not quite. It was a little worse, but I understand what he's saying. But even this guy, like this guy in this condition, I believe could find hope in the book of Nehemiah because it's been so powerful and it's been so practical as we've studied it. And we're in our last week today. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 7. Grab your notes out of your bulletin so you can follow along or you can fire up the Journey Church app and all of our sermon scripture and sermon notes will be listed on there. But we one more time turn to the book of Nehemiah to ask, how do we rebuild broken things? We've learned the past month not to settle for broken. Even if everyone else in our world does, even if everyone else in our job does, even if everyone else in our family does, we don't settle for broken. We've learned that it's okay not to be okay. 
And because we've said that we've had so many people bringing their friends, we've had people who are alcoholics who've walked into church for the first time and said, I just want to know that I could still come if I struggle with this. We've got drug addicts who've been coming to our church and saying, I'm, I'm not okay, but if you'll work with me, I think God has something more for my life. We've had people struggling with any type of thing you can imagine who say, hey, if it's okay not to be okay and I can come to your church, that's great. But I don't want to remain that way. And that's what we've learned from Nehemiah. We've learned we've got to lean on others for help. No one rebuilds from broken alone. We've learned we have to learn how to take inventory of what's broken. We've got to do a self-assessment without blaming other people. We've learned we have to learn how to talk to God and get vertical in our cries for help. Meaning we talk not just to people about God, but to God about people. We've learned that God in the past is proof that God can still be there in the future. And last week, we learned that when we try to rebuild, there's going to be resistance, but we've got to be able to work through the resistance of sin. We've got to be able to push through the resistance of relationships. And now we come to the place in Nehemiah where the wall is built. Like the broken city that Nehemiah came to rebuild has been rebuilt on the outside, but there are still three really valuable lessons to learn about rebuilding the inside. And here's what we learn. Lesson number one as we dig into Nehemiah chapter 7. We learn rebuilding broken is only step one. I mean, the reason that Nehemiah is 13 chapters long instead of six chapters long is because the primary objective was not just to rebuild the walls. The physical broken was just step one of rebuilding spiritual, spiritually broken things. In Nehemiah chapter 7, going through verse 4, here's what we read. After the wall had been rebuilt and I'd set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hananiah along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and he feared God more than most people do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts, some near their homes. The city is safe. It's now secure. But verse 4 said the city was large. And it was spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. Here we see a problem. The walls had been rebuilt, but the rebuilding wasn't finished. Nehemiah didn't move 500 miles from Persia, modern-day Iran, to modern-day Jerusalem just to rebuild walls and gates. Nehemiah moved because he knew God had a grand plan for this city called Jerusalem, and Nehemiah wasn't going to be finished until the plan for Jerusalem was done. But now the walls are up, the gates are up, but the city is empty. And this is a problem because Jerusalem was designed to be filled with the people of God, pursuing the purpose of God, and Nehemiah knew until that had happened that just repairing the walls was just step one of what God intended for life. And here's what you need to understand. Your life is just like Jerusalem. Your life is designed to be filled with people and designed to be filled with purpose. And if you address an area of brokenness and you begin to repair an area of brokenness, but you don't then fill your life with the right people and the right purpose, that wall may stand for a time, but your life will not be the design that God created it to be. Addressing your brokenness is a huge step, and for the dozens and dozens of you who have spoken truth and said, this area is broken, I'm proud of you, that's a huge breakthrough for you. But that's only step one. The next two steps are what bring long-term change because they begin to address what's on the inside and not just what's broken on the outside. Lesson two that we learn from Nehemiah today is that spiritual revival is the second step. 
So rebuilding broken, it's a, it's a big part. Addressing broken, rebuilding broken is a big part. But spiritual revival is what fills the inside of our lives to begin to live the purpose of God. In Nehemiah chapter 7, we just read a long list of names of people who came back to Jerusalem and were willing to start living in the land and in the city again. But in Nehemiah chapter 8, it actually begins in the last part of Nehemiah 7.73, the last half verse, into Nehemiah chapter 8, we see what revival looks like. We see what it looks like not just to be fixed on the outside, but to begin to be rebuilt on the inside. Here's what we read, starting in the last half of Nehemiah 7, verse 73. It says, When the seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled in their towns, now I'm in Nehemiah 8, verse 1, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, the women, and the others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah. On his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Husham, Hashabababadadana. I can't read them either. I just make them up as I go. Zechariah and that other guy. Verse 5. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God of all the people, lifted their hands, and they responded, Amen and Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, there's a bunch of them there, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing all the people said to them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Don't grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for this is a holy day. Don't grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink and send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Skip down to Nehemiah chapter 9. It's been 24 days now, two, three and a half weeks. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of the Israelite descent had separated themselves from all the foreigners. They stood in their places and they confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. They spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. This is what Nehemiah had in mind when he came back. The people of God in the city of God living for the purposes of God. You see, Nehemiah knew Jerusalem wasn't just any city with any purpose. But Jerusalem was designed to be the city of God. So for people to understand it was the city of God, it had to be filled with the people of God living out the purposes of God. And for people to understand that you are a child of God, your life has to be filled with people of God and the purpose of God. Here's a truth that you're going to have to embrace if you're going to get serious about living your life of faith. And I, and I want to say this again in case you missed that. Like if you ever desire to really have a passionate faith life. You have to embrace this truth. As a Christian, 
Your life is designed to function at its best when your life is filled with the people of God and the purpose of God. Like there's no question about that. From Nehemiah chapter 8 all the way through the rest of the New Testament scripture, your life is designed if you're a Christian. Now, not everyone in here, in here is a Christian. I understand that. I'm glad if you're not a Christian that you're giving us some of your time today to kind of figure out what Christianity looks like. Maybe you know a Christian who doesn't appear to really live like a Christian. If that's the case, I bet this is part of their life that's broken. You see, as a Christian, your life is designed to function at its best. You'll be strongest when your life is filled with the people of God and the purpose of God. This is when your life is spiritual strongest. And Nehemiah describes this type of life as living in the joy of the Lord. He actually said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Did anyone else grow up in an old kind of denominational church singing this song when you were a little kid? The joy of the Lord is your strength, right? Gives me living water, blah, blah, blah. And then we're happy all the time. The joy of the Lord is, has nothing to do without, with being happy all the time. The joy of the Lord is not a moment of emotion. The joy of the Lord is a state of being. It's living at a place of strength because of who God is in you and around you. And the joy of the Lord is found in five places in Nehemiah chapter 8. We, we see rolled out for us what it looks like to live in the joy of the Lord. First, we see that the joy of the Lord is found in the promises of his word. We see for one of the first times in the Bible, church like we're doing church today. It says ne Ezra stood up on a platform. The people were below him. He opened the Bible and he just began to read them the Bible. More than that, there were a bunch of guys on stage with him that we can't really pronounce their names well. And after Nehemiah read the Bible, we could call them small group leaders. They went out and they got people together in groups and said, now what questions do you have? Do you understand what's being read? Do you understand how it applies to you? Okay, you heard Nehemiah say, Ezra say this, do you know now how to apply that to your life? They did church like we did church by studying the promises of God's word so they could know them and understand them. Secondly, they engaged in community. And the community of God's people is where we find the joy of the Lord. In Nehemiah 8, 10 through 12, the people were all upset. Why? Because God's word was read. And here's what God's word said. It basically said, none of you are living the way God wants you to. All the people were really convicted about that. And they said, don't worry, even though your life has missed the mark of who God wants you to be. He's going to forgive you. So let's celebrate who God is. And they sent the people away into each other's homes, into each other's lives, into each other's families. And they said, listen, just live Christian life together in community. Sometimes we read in Scripture the greatest Christians in Scripture celebrating the greatest victories they've ever had. Guys like Moses, Abraham, uh, Elijah, Noah. And because they're alone, they're miserable. Great Christians celebrating great spiritual moments, but without any people and they're miserable. We always see scripture pointing us to community, to people. So the joy of the Lord is found in community. The joy of the Lord, number three, is found in living for something more. I didn't read this in the text, but in verse 13 through 17, it says, They uncovered in the law of the Lord that in the seventh month they should keep the Feast of Tabernacles or the Festival of Tabernacles or the Festival of Booths. If you have an American calendar that has Hebrew holidays laid into it, you know in the last three weeks we celebrated the Festival of Sukkot, S-U-K-K-O-T. A, a Sukkot is basically a booth. It's a tent. It's a temporary dwelling. And here's what God said to his people. Catch this. He said, once a year for seven days, I want you to move out of your house and I want you to go live in a tent in the wilderness or a booth that you will build, a suit coat. And he said, here's why. I need you every year to be reminded you don't live for the things that you have. The purpose of your life is not your house. The purpose of your life is not your cars. 
The purpose of your life is not your television. Your purpose of your life is not your bills. Like, I want, I want to remind you, every year I want you to leave all your stuff. And I just want you and your family and creation to get together and remember the real purpose of life. So the Israelites read that and they said, let's go do that. So they all moved out of their houses and they lived in booths. They lived in tabernacles. They lived in tents. This is a holiday that I've always wanted to celebrate as I've begun to study Jewish history, but I'm not a real like campy type of person. Like I don't like bugs and like snakes and you know, that type of stuff. I, I enjoy my things, not more than God, but I like my bed. I mean, I just do. Um, but I, thought, I told Danielle, I said, one day we're going we're gonna to do this. And she said, Christian, I don't know that you could survive a week um, like out in a tent. This, this Halloween week, we had some friends over, and our kids all went to run the neighborhood and get some candy. And the adults sat in the driveway, and Danielle was like, you need to build a fire. That's what we do on Halloween. I was like, it's 80 degrees. She's like, no, it's Halloween. You need to build a fire. So I tried to build a fire um, in the little fire pit deal. And it was so windy that I couldn't get the fire going. Um, so I thought, man, I, there's no way I'm going to build it here. So I took my fire pit into my garage where there was no wind. Um, and I lit it, and I got it going like really, really good. And after like the second kind of like piece of ash blew under my car, um, I thought, you know, a fire in your garage is kind of like a fire in your house. Um, so I was like, I, I think I might need to get this out of here. So we opened the garage door and tried not to kill ourselves pulling it out in the driveway. I say that to say I might not survive in the wilderness for a week, but I want to be reminded that I'm supposed to live for something more. I don't go to work every day so I can come home and pay my mortgage. I go to work every day so I can come home, be a productive citizen, and then live and enjoy with my family. We learn, number four, that the joy of the Lord is found in forgiveness through grace. I love Nehemiah chapter 9. The people found out how much they had missed God's standard for their life, and it broke their hearts. But then they found out, not because they deserved it, but because God was grateful that he was going to forgive them, which led them, number five, to worship. The worship of God's people is where we find the joy of the Lord. And when you look at these five things together, these things are supposed to bring strength to your life. Our church loves to make t-shirts. A lot of churches make t-shirts um, around the country today. And I struggle with the t-shirt that says, I love my church. I've told our people, we will never make a t-shirt that says, I love my church. Because it's not my, it's, we can make a shirt that says, I love Jesus church, but not my church. I just don't like what that does in a community with lots of great churches in it. But I love church. I love Sunday morning. I love doing this. You know why? Because I look at that screen and I think this, this is what we try to do on Sunday morning. We, we try to come together, number five, and we try to worship. We come together and we focus on and sing about the forgiveness of God through his grace. We come together and we talk about living for something more. We, we come together as a community of his people, not by ourselves, but with a bunch of us. And we come together every Sunday and we focus on the promises of his word. And I love doing that with you because the Bible tells me that brings the joy of the Lord into my life and that makes me stronger. So I love church because church makes me stronger. I love what we do on Sunday morning because if we do this well, we all leave stronger than we walked in. And that's our goal every Sunday, that you'd be stronger, that you'd experience some revival in your life. But some of us are strong. We're weak. Some of us have, have had weak moments this week. Some of us have had weak months this year. And some of us have had weak years this decade. And some of us are just in the midst of, it's just been a long, long time since there's been any strength anywhere. So what do we do? When, when we've begun to address broken, and when at one point we experience revival, but we're not there any minute, we're weak, what do we do? Well, the third lesson that Nehemiah 13 teaches us is that spiritual 
recommitment is always step next. I didn't say step three because sometimes it's step three, but you know what? Sometimes it's step 33. Sometimes it's step 103. Sometimes it's step 1,000 of three. And sometimes it's step 3,003. Like sometimes people connect to God and then they kind of get away in steps three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, or live for anything but God. And when we find ourselves drifting away from our God, what do we do? The very next step needs to be a step of recommitment back to God. Now, let me tell you something about Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah chapter 13 was the last chapter of the Old Testament to be written. Like it was the very last. If, if the Old Testament was laid out chronologically, the last thing before Matthew chapter 1 would be Nehemiah chapter 13. It was the last piece of Old Testament history written. It was written later than everything else in the Old Testament. And between Nehemiah chapter 12 and Nehemiah chapter 13, there were nine years. Like you should, like I have, go in your Bible. And between Nehemiah chapter 12 verse 47 and 13 verse 1, just write with a pen, nine years. Nine years separate. Almost a decade separated Nehemiah 12 from Nehemiah 13. And here's what had happened in that decade. In Nehemiah chapter 1, we read Nehemiah came back to Jerusalem. He rebuilt Jerusalem. By the time we get through with Nehemiah chapter 8, they'd experience revival. But then Nehemiah went back to Persia, and he'd been there for nine years. And in that nine years, we can fill in the gaps because of the Old Testament prophets. They had a bad decade. You say, well, what happened in that nine years? How can we know what happened in those nine years? Why did Nehemiah come back? Well, here's what we know about those nine years that aren't written about in the book of Nehemiah. We know that in those nine years, the people drifted spiritually. They were at a place of strong spiritual strength. They were at a place of rebuilding externally and internally. They were strong spiritually, but then they drifted spiritually, and they begun to, number two, follow leaders who drifted spiritually. I believe that's for this reason. I believe when people who want to be close to God and who want to have a spiritual element to their life begin to drift spiritually and they understand it, that there's only three options. They can get out, they can get back in, or they can find some leader who will tell them kind of where they are spiritually is okay. And I believe we've got a lot of that happening in the church today. People are drifting spiritually and they're trying to find leaders who basically, they, they want you to say, hey, tell me my life is okay. I don't want to hear what the Bible says. Tell me my life is okay. We know this because the book of Malachi was written between Nehemiah chapter 12 and Nehemiah chapter 13. And Malachi looked at the people of Jerusalem and he said, you have all gotten off spiritually and it's the fault of the leaders. They've kind of told you it's no big deal. You don't have to go to worship. You don't have to do this. And he said, you drifted spiritually. You found leaders who made you feel good about drifting spiritually. And you're kind of all guilty. And as we read through the book of Malachi, here's why they had drifted. They became consumed with self and they became consumed with work. I want to state for the record, I don't think that makes you a bad person. I also want to state that most Christians I talk to who drift spiritually, this is their reality. It's not a, it's not a reason, it's a reality. I don't meet very many people who say, I just don't want to read my Bible. That's why I quit. I just don't like to pray. That's why I quit. I just hate church. That's why I quit. Most of them begin to drift because they just get really busy with their life and they get really, really busy with their work. Not bad people. They just prioritize other things over their faith. And then eventually, number four, they become too busy for a life with spiritual people and spiritual purpose. And this was the Jerusalem that Nehemiah stepped back into. Now, look at that screen for a minute. Is that you? Is that a picture of your life? Let's go from four to one. Let's walk up instead of down. Is this a picture of your life? Be honest. Okay, we're 10 months into the year. 
How's your year spiritually this year? Are you too busy for a life with spiritual people and spiritual purposes? 2016 been a busy year? Do you put everything in your life and work above your relationship with God? Doesn't make you bad, just but own it. Are you trying to find people who will say, hey, that's okay, just kind of love God and do your thing, that's okay? And if you were honest, would you say that, that you're drifting spiritually? Andy Stanley, who's a great communicator and author that I follow, so people never drift in the right direction. If we drift, we're always drifting away. Is that a picture of your life? Because if it is, your next step is recommitment. It's to realize it and say, I'm not even sure how I got here, but I got to get back. Remember when you were a little kid playing in the ocean for one of the first times and your mom and dad just say, be safe, and you go in, you see your mom and dad on the beach, you see them on the beach, and next thing you know, you're hundreds of yards down the beach and you haven't done anything but just float on your raft? It's where some of you are spiritually. God hasn't moved, but you've drifted a long way from him. You need to get back on the beach and walk back to him. That's what spiritual recommitment looks like. Look at Nehemiah chapter 13 because we see Nehemiah confronting some things. I'm going to kind of chop up this chapter and just show you what Nehemiah did. I'll start in Nehemiah 13, 6. Nehemiah said, while all this spiritual drift was going on, I wasn't even in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I'd returned to the king. That was his boss. Sometime later, I asked his permission and I came back to Jerusalem. Stop right there. Most scholars believe that somehow he received a copy of the book of Malachi. And after he read what was going on in Jerusalem, when he read Malachi's account of the spiritual drift, he said, not on my watch. And he stepped back in. He says, I came back to Jerusalem, verse 7. Here I learned about the evil thing that Elisha, he was the high priest of Israel, had done in providing Tobiah with a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased. I threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and I put them back, put back into them the equipment of the house of God with grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites hadn't been given to them, and all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back into their own fields. Let me tell you what that meant. He said the people quit going to church, nobody gave offerings, so all the, all the pastors and worship leaders, they quit. Just quit doing ministry. They didn't trust God. Taking care of themselves was more important than taking care of the church. People left, pastors quit, and now no, no one's even taking care of the church. Nehemiah says in verse 11, So I rebuke the officials and ask them, Why is the house of, the God, of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their post. Nehemiah says, I found something broken and I fixed it. Flip over to verse 15. He says, In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of other loads. They were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre, modern-day Lebanon, who lived in Jerusalem, were bringing fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What's this wicked thing you're doing, desecrating the Sabbath? Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity on us in our city? Now you're storing up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. He said, I found something that was broken and I fixed it. Flip over to verse 23. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who'd married women from Ashdod, Am, and Moab. Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not even know how to speak the language of Judah, which meant at the time there was no way they could have a relationship with the God of Israel. Nehemiah said, I found something broken, so I fixed it. And I read through this, and I had this thought. Just as a leader, I had this thought. Does it even matter? Is this a question I'm asking about? Like, does it even matter? Like Nehemiah stepped in, and in a year he brought everything together, and as soon as he left, it all fell apart again. You had to think he was wondering at some point, like, 
Does any of this even matter? Do these people even care? Is it even necessary to keep fighting? They're just going to keep drifting every time I lead again. Does it matter? And the answer is yes, it matters. And what we learn from Nehemiah and what we learn all through Scripture, listen very, very closely. The key to an enduring faith life is not perfection, it's perseverance. It matters. When you get it right and then it drifts to wrong, you fix it because it matters. When you're close to God and then you're not, you fix it because it matters. And you keep fighting because it matters. Several years ago when Christian was in elementary school, uh, I had the opportunity, you know, a couple times a semester to bring him lunch. And at that point, you can not only bring your kids lunch, but you could go out on the playground with him. So he asked me, Dad, can you bring me lunch? Um, and then we're going to go to recess. And I said, yeah, I can stay through recess. So I asked him, what do you want for lunch and what game are we going to play? So I went and I brought him lunch. And he said, Dad, um, we're going to eat lunch and then we're going to go uh, play kickball. And I said, all right. And he's like, will you play kickball with us? I was like, yeah, I'll play kickball with you. I love kickball. So we eat lunch, and we go out to play kickball, and it's like me. I'm the only dad there that day, and it's like me and all these like second, third graders are up to my hip, and I'm in line waiting my turn to kick, and there's all these kids spread out on this playground, and it's finally my turn to step up to the plate, and I step up to the plate, and all the kids are like, scoop back, scoop back, and they all like start running for the hills as if I'm like Pele or, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo. That's the way. And I look at Christian, and Christian's like, his puffs, chest puffed out, and he's like, that's my dad. And like everyone runs hundreds of feet away, except for like the pitcher, the first baseman, and this one little girl who's not paying attention, like his second base, she's like twirling. Um, and, you know, Christian's like, dad, kick it far. And I'm like, all right. And what you need to know is I didn't play up like kick, grow up kicking things. Like I, I could probably throw a kickball really far, but kicking something off the ground, I, I just not done a lot of that. Um, I played kickball in school, but, but that's not my expertise. So the pitcher rolls the ball in, and it's, it's kind of bouncing a little bit. If you ever play kickball, you want one that's on the ground, not that's bouncing. And I thought, you know, they're all little kids. I can't catch it and roll it and say, throw it straight. So, you know, I, I run up to it, and I try to kick this bouncing ball, and I, like, almost completely whiff. Like, it went off my shin and, like, kind of spun to the girl who wasn't paying attention. She kind of looked up and got it and, like, threw it to first like this and got me out. <laughs> and I looked over at Christian, and he just went like this. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, like... I've just crushed my son. Like, I could win a preaching contest, but not a kickball game. He's like, that's not cool for a kid. Um, and, I, you know, I went up to him. I was like, man, I'm sorry. He's like, you know, it's, a, it's okay, Dad. And I was like, you know, I'll do better next time. He's like, it's all right, Dad. Um, you know, we went in. And a couple weeks later, he's like, hey, do you want to bring me lunch? I was like, yeah, I'll come to lunch. We can go to recess. And he's like, well, okay. So I get there, and he's eating, like, really, really slow. Like, almost everyone's gone. I was like, Christian, shouldn't we hurry up so we can get to recess? And he's like, oh, we don't have to go to recess today, Dad. <laughs> I said, Christian, don't you want to go to recess? And he's like, no, it's okay. And I said, do you want to go to recess without me? I'll go home. And he's like, well, would that be okay? It was like, you know, I, would it be okay for you not to embarrass me today on the playground? You know, I tell that story because I think that's how a lot of people see Jesus. Like at some point in their life, they stepped up to the plate spiritually and they intended to knock it out of the park. Like they stepped up to the plate and they said, I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to finally get it right. And I'm going to pray and I'm going to finally get it right. And I'm going to take this habit I've struggled with my whole life and I'm going to finally get it right. And I'm going to start talking to my neighbors about Christianity. I'm going to finally get it right. And when the ball comes rolling in, we whiff spiritually and somehow we get a glance over at Jesus and we think Jesus does this. And when we attempt to recommit, we think Jesus says, you know what? Is okay. 
I, I saw, I saw your last try. It's okay. But Jesus is not disappointed in you. There's no such thing as disappointed Jesus. You don't read about him in the Bible. As a matter of fact, you see the very opposite. Jesus speaking to one of his disciples named Peter says this in Luke 22, 31 through 34. Maybe you need to hear this today. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison to death. I'm going to knock it out of the park. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you're going to deny three times that you know me, you're going to get out. Jesus went up to Peter and he said, listen, you're going to try spiritually and you're going to fail spiritually. When that happens, come back. You need to understand, Jesus is saying to you, you're going to try spiritually and you're going to fail spiritually. When that happens, come back. Jesus never looks at your spiritual whiff and shakes his head in disappointment. Jesus says, all right, try again. We're going to let you have another bat. You're back to the front of the line. Try again. And I'm convinced some Christians don't ever get to the step of recommitment because they think, I tried and I failed and Jesus doesn't want me on his team anymore. Yes, he does. You're always his first pick. That's how it works. And he not only told Peter, when you fail, come back. He, he told Peter, when you fail, come back and help everyone else who's failing. I'm not on this stage because of spiritual perfection. I'm up here because of spiritual perseverance. As a matter of fact, I remember my recommitments more than my first commitments because they're so long ago and I broke them so many times. It's my latest recommitments that count the most. But every time, just like Nehemiah fought for Jerusalem, every time God's grace fights for my recommitment says, get back up, try again, try again, try again. If you're here today after a lapse of spiritual failure, it's because God has fought to get you back to this place to put you up to the plate again. You're here for a reason. You're not here by chance. And God has a design for your life that is so much better than what you're living if you're not living God's design for your life. He wants to help you rebuild what is broken. And listen, don't you dare settle for less than what God has for you just because you want to be too spiritually lazy or you get too busy to connect. Rebuild what's broken. Press into revival. Realize your soul was made by God for God and you experience that best when you're in his word with his people, living for his purposes, learning about and embracing his forgiveness and even learning to forgive yourselves and learning how to worship as a result of all those truths. And listen, when you fail, recommit. When you plan to knock it out of the park and you hit a Squibber to a second grade girl who's not even paying attention. Get back up. There's no such thing as disappointed Jesus. You are his first pick every game. Step back up to the plate. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you need to experience revival in your life? Do you need to experience revival again in your life? Connect, recommit, press in. Let's pray together. Father,